0: It's great to be back at Colonial and get after this the third year. Get to know some people, recognize some faces. Not all of them, obviously, but uh, good to be back with you. For those of you who don't know Watchmen, I know that can sometimes be confusing. People hear Watchmen Fellowship and they confuse the word Watchmen and they think Watchtower and they think of the Jehovah's Witnesses going door to door. That's not us. We're the good guys. (laughs) What we do at Watchman Fellowship is we do the research on new religious movements, alternative faiths, everything from cults and the occult, world religions, and train Christians throughout the United States and internationally how to recognize what other people believe, but we want to go way beyond recognition to providing tools, encouragement to be able to build a bridge, to be able to reach people with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've got some resources to help you with that. The title of my message today, though, is... Famous last words of the watchman. Famous last words of the watchman. I've always had a fascination with last words. I don't know how long this goes back, but I can remember even even as a teenager being interested. You know, if you only had 30 seconds, 45 seconds to say something, you, you knew you were about to die, what would be your last words? And I've kind of looked at that over the years, kind of been following after that. In fact, come to find out there's whole books written on the subject of last words... And in fact, I I got this particular book for Christmas. Actually, uh, there's an earlier version I already had of this book. This is the new edition. Apparently, more people have died. They have to keep it updated. And uh, the title of the book is Famous Last Words, Fond Farewells, Deathbed Diatribes, and Exclamations Upon Expiration. It's by Ray Robbins. I just wanted to share a couple with you if I could. Uh, I think they're insightful or humorous. Uh, One of them is Karl Marx. Now, Karl Marx, of course, is the father of communism. Marxism is named for Karl Marx. And famous atheist, his philosophy would would later impact a third of the world's population at its zenith. And so this famous atheist, he's dying. uh, 1883 is the date. So his housekeeper wants to come and try to pull a last word, some kind of historical famous saying that uh, she could get from this very famous atheist, uh, Karl Marx. And so uh, she comes in and says, Mr. Marx, do you have any last words? And he said this. To his housekeeper, he says, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And upon that, he died. Now, ironically, he also gave his last words. Which he, of course, said was for fools. Another one that was kind of uh, ironic. The Battle of Spotsylvania. During the Civil War, in the Battle of Spotsylvania, the Union general was Major General John Sedgwick. And he was commanding the Union forces. So he wants his guys to have courage, and they're about to go in and face the battle. But he wants them to be brave. So right before the battle begins, he stands before his men and he says, Don't worry, boys. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dis." And at that point, Confederate sharpshooter found his mark, and he fell instantly dead. One more. This is from Spike Milligan. You may have not have heard. Spike Milligan is a comedian, playwright, Irish. He died just in 2002. His last words, I told you I was ill. He got the last word, did In fact, they actually put this on his tombstone, apparently. But I've been interested in famous last words. The title of my message, Famous Last Words of the Watchman. Now, these are not the last words of this watchman, president of Watchman Fellowship. I hope, I'm I'm hoping that in future years I'll have an opportunity to come back to Colonial Baptist and share with you more words. These are not my last words. It's actually the last words of the Apostle Paul to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Turn, if you will, to, to the book of Acts, to chapter 20. What's happened here, these are not Paul's actual last words because he would live on and actually die as a martyr. Uh, These are not his last words, but these are the last words to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And uh, let's pick up in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now what's happened on the missionary journey, Paul's already spent three years in Ephesus. Uh, evangelizing, training, equipping the leadership of the church there in Ephesus. And he's continued on on his missionary journey. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem, but he swings by close enough on his way back to Jerusalem to Miletus. He's close enough he can call for the leadership to come down for one farewell, one last words, if you will. And so uh, verse 18, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. More on that later, but let me just say, from the book of Acts, we learned that Paul's missionary journey was no uh, piece of cake. It was, it was marked by trials, tribulations, tribulations. His life at jeopardy, stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra, shipwrecked on several occasions. And it's in the midst of this trial, he brings them together for these last words. And he says to them, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. What he's saying is that he did not hold back anything that was profitable, anything that they needed to know to have a relationship with the God of the universe, to have their sins forgiven. Now, Paul was not without his critics. And we know from elsewhere in the scriptures there were false teachers in that day who would try to accuse the Apostle Paul of shrinking back, of not telling the whole story. He left out part of the gospel. There were the Judaizers. There was the Galatian heresy that affected the churches in northern Galatia. What happened is there were false teachers who said that that you need to do more than what Paul told you. Paul didn't tell you everything. Oh, you must keep the Old Testament law. You must be under the dietary law. You must uh, do all these good works. You must be circumcised. There were all kinds of rules they were laying out. Paul said, no, I didn't shrink back from anything. I share with you everything you needed to know to have your sins forgiven... That was profitable to you in your relationship with God forever in heaven, and he explains that there in verse uh, verse twenty uh, verse twenty one rather solemnly testifying. This is the testimony to both Jews and Greeks of here it is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the gospel right there. Repentance towards God that simply means that you are going in your life in a direction and you're not serving God. You're not loving God. In fact, you're serving yourself, and you're breaking God's laws. And God does a miraculous work in your heart. God changes your heart and causes you to have a change in direction. It's called repentance. You're going this way, but you make a turn to God, and you put all of your faith, he says, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You put all your faith in what Jesus did as your Savior. You don't save yourself. You put your faith not in you, your faith resides totally in Jesus Christ. There's the gospel right there. And he says, he goes on to say, verse 22 And now, behold, bound in the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, he's not sure. This is a mystery. He hasn't had the benefit of reading the book of Acts. He doesn't know how this is going to end, but he does have a clue. Because he says in the next verse, verse 23, except, he knows this much, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He's saying this. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit's made it fairly clear. Two things to watch for. Bonds, now that means chains, imprisonment, bonds await me, but also afflictions, Trials, uh, hard times, pain, suffering await me. Now, there are going to be some people out there, even on Christian television, and you're going to be watching, and they're going to tell you if you have enough faith, you'll never have a problem in your life. You'll have plenty of money, you'll never have any uh, securities about your job concerns, you'll never be sick, you'll never have disease. Yeah, I'm privileged to be able to close out this series, this summer series, Safe Harbor, Faith in Turbulent Times. But the faith that we're talking about in this series is not a kind of faith that makes the turbulent times go away. No, what we learn from this passage is you can be right in the center of God's will, and you can be being led by the Holy Spirit knowing that you're going into two things, chains, bonds, and afflictions. No, the faith we're talking about is trusting God the sovereign God of the universe, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the very turbulent times. And that's what Paul is identifying with here. And he says this, verse 24, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now, behold... I know that all you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. This is his last opportunity. He spent three years mentoring, preparing, discipling these church leaders. But he knows this is his last chance. So what what is going to be his final instructions? What are going to be his famous last words, if you will? Well, let's pick up here in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, that's kind of a strange last words. The first thing the Apostle Paul wants them to know, these are his last words. He's not going to see their face anymore. He says, you must know this. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, what does that mean? Does he mean by that that he's never drawn blood? He's never physically accosted anyone? Or maybe he means by that perhaps he's never actually murdered anyone. No, that's not what Paul means. We know better because we know the book of Acts. And we know that this same Paul, before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. And it was the same Saul, Paul, who was an enemy of the church and went around persecuting the Christians, and actually in some cases to the death of those Christians. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was actually a co-conspirator in the martyrdom and the death and the stoning of Stephen here earlier in the book of Acts. So he doesn't mean he's innocent that way. Well, then what is he talking about? I'm innocent of the blood. These are his last words. If you check the commentaries, there's virtual unanimous agreement here that the Apostle Paul is actually making a reference to the Old Testament. He's actually referring and making a connection with himself in the book of Ezekiel chapter 33. So if you're in your notes, just jot that down. We won't turn there right now. But Paul is identifying himself as as Ezekiel 33, where God places a watchman on the wall. In fact, our ministry, Watchman Fellowship, our name is drawn from this same passage in Ezekiel 33. And what happens is is, it's very uh, interesting. God tells Ezekiel that he has set up a watchman... Ezekiel is a watchman on the wall, and the duty or responsibility of the watchman is to scan scan the horizon for any danger that's going to impact his community, his city. Now, what the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, if the watchman sees danger coming, his primary responsibility is to blow the horn. It was a trumpet, or the actual Hebrew word, it was shofar, shofar. It was a ram's horn or an animal's horn. So the watchman sees trouble coming, he blows the trumpet. He sounds the shofar to wake people up. Now, what the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, if the watchman sees danger coming, he's got a trumpet, he's got the horn. But for some unexplained reason, the the Bible doesn't go into why, but for some reason, the watchman never blows the trumpet. Never sounds the alarm If the watchman fails to blow the trumpet and that city is destroyed, Ezekiel 33 says, well, the blood of those people will be required at the watchman's hand. Now, that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, fellas, guys, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Apparently, what he meant by that, he he identified himself with the watchman of Ezekiel 33. And apparently, he meant that any time he had an opportunity... Whether it was chained before two Roman guards, whether it was before King Agrippa, whether it was at the Areopagus in Athens, uh, wherever, where he was at the gates of the city, no matter where Paul was, if God gave him an opportunity and opened a door, he did not shrink back. He declared to them everything they needed to know to have a relationship with God, to have their sins forgiven. He was a watchman who shared the gospel. And therefore, he says, he's innocent of the blood of all men. Would it be that we could come back even a week from now, a month from now, and say, you know, best I know how, as God gave me an opportunity at the workplace, at the convenience store, at the mall, students there with a friend at school, if God very visibly opened the door for me to share something about what God has done in my life, the, the, the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, best I knew how, I always took that opportunity. We could say we're innocent of the blood of all men. So who is the watchman then? You could argue, of course, that Paul has certainly identified himself as the watchman. So in one sense, he's the watchman. Or you could go back to the original watchman, which was Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the watchman. Or you could pr- try to put the blame on me. James, you're the president of watchmen. You're the watchman. But really, we all are. So I want you to put down in your outline, I am. Who is the watchman? I think every person who names the name of Christ that God has called us, as Paul's talking about here, to be a good watchman. I used to tell people years ago, as I would talk about our ministries called Watchman Fellowship and what that means, and I would say, you know, I want you to consider starting today to start becoming a watchman. But then I realized I had it all wrong. What I realized is we already are a watchman. The only real question is, are we going to be good watchmen or are we going to be watchmen who need Improvement. Well, Paul's ta- addressing this, and there are several insights that he gives. If we're going to be good watchmen for the rest of his address here, he talks about some principles in these ancient words. So let's let these ancient words impart. What, is, what do we learn from the Scriptures today? Whom should you watch? The first thing the Apostle Paul addresses, whom should you watch if you're going to be a watchman? Verse 28 has the answer. He writes, Be on guard for two things, for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So two things we see. Whom should we be watching if we're going to be good watchmen? First of all, we must watch ourselves. Let me tell you, we're living in a time of of, of American culture where there are so many subtle philosophies. There are so many appealing philosophies. Uh, attractive doctrines out there. There's something that's so popular amongst the churches right now. If you don't watch and guard your own heart, any one of us, me and I'm including myself on this, all of us are vulnerable. And what Paul's saying here is is you're not going to be able to guard anybody unless you're first of all able to guard your own self. So you have to guard A, yourselves, and then B, your flock. He says, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So I ask you the question, who is your flock? You ever thought about that? Think about that for a moment. Who is your flock that God has given you? Now, if you're a minister or if you're a leader in a small group or Bible study, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer. You can say, well, you know, I've I've really kind of got a flock. I'm leading a Bible study right now or a small group. But I think it goes beyond that. Who is your flock? Students, let me ask you this. You're about to start school. What about some of those friends at school? Do you know that you probably have a relationship with some people at your your school that no other human being does? And perhaps God is speaking to you and saying, you know, in a very real, tangible way, that's your flock that you're to be watching over. Or how about us as parents or as grandparents? Obviously, we've been given a flock that we are to guard and guide our children, our grandchildren. So your flock. And then he addresses the question what should you watch? Okay, whom should you watch? You watch yourself and your flock. But what should we be watching for? What should you watch? And he addresses that in verse 29, verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, he says this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You have a flock problem. Paul says, you know, I'm not even going to get to Jerusalem. In fact, I'm just going to be right at the city limits on my way to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen is false teachers are coming in. They are wolves attacking your flock. They're coming in from the outside. They're not part of the flock, but they're they're coming to attack the flock. And Jesus, of course, made the same analogy when he talked about the false prophets, which he said, which come to you in sheep's clothing. They They may look like part of the flock, but they're actually hungry wolves. So we, we're looking at this and we're seeing that, that we're to be watching out from what could be called dangers from without. Dangers from without. This is a danger coming from outside the flock, but it's certainly impacting the flock. Now, in Paul's day, what was the danger? What were the dangers that he was facing from without? Well, obviously, I think he's referring to what happened just in the previous chapter in, in Acts, when Paul was in Ephesus originally, or back in chapter 19. You might remember that there was a a riot at the amphitheater for hours. The citizens of Ephesus, uh, the, the Christians' lives were in jeopardy. They were screaming out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now this was the Artemis cult. The goddess Diana, or also known as Artemis, was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. And come to find out, the entire economy of Ephesus was based on the temple Uh, of uh, the temple built to diana and the tourism that was based on that and the sales of the idols and paul and the other christians were teaching that there was only one true god and that was the the father of our lord jesus christ and jesus himself was god well where did that leave if there's only one god then where does that leave diana artemis there was a riot great as diana the ephesians And then also he mentioned in verse 19 about the plot of the Jews. And the apostle Paul had run-ins with the the Jewish sects like the Sadducees who who, uh, uh, hated Paul's message because the gospel includes the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Sadducees did not believe there was such a thing as a resurrection. And also another sect of Jews Paul had run-ins a danger from without with the Pharisees. And of course Paul himself used to be a Pharisee. And understood that self-righteousness flies in the face of the gospel of grace. So Paul was talking about dangers from without. But I wanted to make this practical for where we are right now. In the early part of the 21st century, what are the dangers from without? We don't have a temple of Diana here in Raleigh. I'm guessing. Now I haven't looked. But I'm fairly certain there's not a temple of Diana. So what are the dangers from without that we're facing right now? One of the things that we do, one of the tools that we have, is a profile notebook. We do these four-page profiles. We've done them for 16 years. And over the years, we've put together about 380 pages of profiles, everything from astrology to um, uh, the the worldwide church of God and everything in between. And what I did in preparing this message, I I just flipped through the notebook. And I I just went through the table of contents. And I'm thinking, what are the dangers from without? And I've come up with 22 I want to share with you but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you, just mention three. <laughs> okay, I'd love to, but I'm only mentioning three to you of very real and present dangers from without today. And the first one I want to talk about is Wicca. We have a profile on Wicca and Wicca is another name for witchcraft. You're not going to be, you're going to be shocked at how this has grown. So I, I had done some of the research back about 15 years ago. So when I went back more recently and looked, even I was shocked by this. As of 2004, if you take Wicca Druidism and, pagan, and, and neo-paganism, witches, druids, and pagans would virtually believe the same thing, virtually the same. If you combine all three of those, that is the seventh largest religion in America today. And these are people proclaiming themselves to be one of those three areas. In fact, there's almost one half of a million followers in that movement right now, Wicca. Uh, another very real and present danger uh, that I want to mention to you is Islam. Islam also is growing very rapidly in America right now. I, um, latest research that I've seen on that, between the years 1990 and 2004, 14-year period, between 1990 and 2004, Islam has grown in the United States by 109%. 109%. Now, all of Christianity in that same period of time has grown by 5%, which does not even keep up with the population growth in the United States. Now, there are reasons for that growth. Uh, uh, The birth rates are one. You also see a lot of immigration. But let me promise you, there is conversion going on in the area of Islam right now, here in North America. I taught a course last semester on Islam at the Criswell College back in Dallas, near where I live. And uh, one of the things I do for my students is I want them to be exposed to the people who who we're actually studying. So we bring in Wiccans. We bring in New Agers. And so for the Islam course, I brought in a number of Muslims for them to meet. One of them, and I've been dealing with this guy for about about a year, year and a half now, is Khalil Meek. Khalil Meek is a convert to Islam. Khalil Meek, born and raised in the United States, raised in a Christian home. Khalil Meek was a Baptist who was in college preparing to go into the ministry as a student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. When his roommate encouraged him to read the Quran, and he converted to Islam. So he told that story to my students. And then my students had 45 delicious minutes of, ans- of asking questions of Mr. Uh, Meek. And uh, now my students, you need to understand, are being graded on the quality of their questions. And they had some very good questions for our Muslim friend. But the point is, it is growing, including by conversion. A third example I wanted to share with you from the notebook is Mormonism. I think it was two years ago when I was here. I shared that story with you, my story, from Mormonism to Christianity. I was born and raised a Mormon, fourth generation. I shared with you being taught, uh, doing baptism for the dead in the Salt Lake City Temple, holding the Aaronic Priesthood. As a Mormon, I was taught that God is actually married, that you have Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, I was taught that if I was a good Mormon, obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, through my own uh, righteousness, eventually I could attain what they call celestial exaltation and actually become a god myself one day. That was my goal as a Latter-day Saint, to be a god. See, the, the theology of Mormonism is so different from Christianity that we would have to look at it as a danger from without. It's not Christian at all. It comes from a worldview of polytheism, not the worldview of monotheism. But the Mormon church is growing tremendously. The Mormon church started with just six charter members in the year 1830. It's grown now to uh, 13.5 million members worldwide, making it one of the fastest-growing religions in the history of the world. And they have claimed years ago in one of their Mormon publications that they are baptizing into the Mormon church Two hundred and eighty-two Baptists are becoming Mormons, they say, being baptized every seven days. The Mormons are very, very active, and it's a very clear and present, a danger from without, a spiritual danger from without. But Paul also mentions another danger, a danger from within, a danger from within. Look at verse 30. He says, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this is the part of the whole narrative that's hard for me to get... of of Paul's famous last words. It's hard for me to to, to grasp. I can understand the dangers from without. But Paul says, even some of you... Now, this is not... These are not just the members of the church. These are the leaders, the elders, the spiritual leaders... whom Paul has spent three years personally mentoring day and night. And he looks around and says, you know, guys... Even some of you. If he was here at Colonial today, he'd say, you know, even some of our Colonial family. It might be you, or maybe you, or perhaps this one, or maybe her, or maybe him. But even of your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things, false doctrine in other words. And then they try to get people to follow after them. This is what we would call a cult. And it was right there, even dangers from within. Now, interestingly... This is the Church of Ephesus. It's the, it's the Ephesian elders, and of course, the pastor of that church was who? Timothy. So, First and Second Timothy is, in effect, written to the same church. And if you pick up First Timothy chapter one verses nineteen and twenty, we find this. Now, keep this in mind with the context: keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their faith has become shipwreck. And then he actually names some of the names of the teachers there in Ephesus. Among these are Hymenaeus, that's one of them, and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So he actually names the names. In Second Timothy, we find the same thing. Chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all those who were in Asia turned away from me. He's talking about the false teachers and he named some. Among whom are Phygaius and Hermogenes. So these are the actual people who were actually part at one time perhaps of the leadership even of the church of Ephesus. But they ended up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. There's a, there's a very real and present danger from within. When I came back this, this year to close out this series, I wanted to talk about some things I'd never talked about here before at Colonial. And I wanted to focus this day on this dangers from within. And again, flipping through the profile notebook, there was a lot I wanted to share, but I just wanted to focus on two. And I want to talk more about this thing called The Shack. There is a New York Times best-selling book, currently number three, in its category, sold millions of copies. It's called The Shack. And it's a popular book, and not just in the secular world. It's sweeping through the Christian churches. I know many of you have read the book, and a number of you like it. And there's some things to like about the book. There's some reasons why this book is very appealing, and it addresses some of the most important questions that we will ever have. And I think that's one of the appeals of the book. But there's a very real and present danger that comes with that book as well. Several of them, actually. The other one I want to talk about, A Danger From Within, making this relevant to today where we're living, I want to talk about the word faith error. The word faith error. Now, the word faith error, and you're going to see this on Christian television. You'll see it on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TVN. You'll see it on the Daystar Television Network, Basically, it's the teaching that a lot of these televangelists have that if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, you'll never, get, you'll never be hungry, you'll never, you'll never be uh, poor, you'll always have plenty of money, new car, new um, uh, Rolls Royce, whatever you want in the power of your word. It's called the prosperity gospel is one name for it, the health and wealth gospel. Some people call it the name it and claim it. Others call it the blab it and grab it, whatever you want by the power of your word. But I just wanted to identify four areas for you of why this is a very real and present danger from within. Four areas of the word faith for the errors of the word faith error. I want to start with positive confession. It's this idea that you, as a believer... Have the creative power of uh, to speak things into existence by the power of your own tongue. You can actually create things, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the power of your tongue. And I've got a video clip to illustrate this for you. And you're going to see on the clip from Benny Hinn and, and also Gloria Copeland and also Joyce Meyer. Let me give you an example of what this looks like, this positive confession. Let's watch that clip
1: me say 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 all all of you say there's power in me me to speak life and death death.
2: you call what you have you say what you want
1: and I'm here to tell you I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing I'm speaking something into
0: existence amen
2: well I want to encourage you to start saying what you want to happen not just always talking about what you've got. You need to say everything I lay my hand to will prosper and succeed. Today we're offering my four-part teaching series entitled Me and My Big Mouth for your gift of any amount.
1: Request your copy of Me and My Big Mouth today.
0: Okay, first thing, don't call that number. We all should actually take that number off. We're not recommending that you order Me and My Big Mouth with Joyce Meyer. What I am saying is this idea that we can create things. Now, again, the truth the biblical truth is the tongue is very powerful. And you can the, the power of the tongue can start wars or create peace simply by the power of the word, of the of your mouth, of the tongue. But while the tongue is powerful, the tongue is not magical. Only God can create things out of nothing, witches think they can with incantations, but only God really has the power to create out of nothing. We don't. We can ask God if it's his will, but we have no power. In all of spirituality, of counterfeit spirituality, there's always an attempt to put yourself up on the throne of God and to pull God out of the way so you can go there, to pull God off of his throne as sovereign king. And what you're going to see is the second illustration of the error of the word faith deals with the doctrine, many of them teach it, we are little gods. And you're going to see Kenneth Hagan, the late Kenneth Hagan, Kenneth Copeland uh, teach this, many of them. On this particular video clip, I just want to share with you Creflo Dollar. Now this is from the Daystar Television Network, Creflo Dollar on the doctrine that we are actually little gods. Let's watch the clip.
1: now in verse 26 and verse 27 God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind we now see God producing man and if God now produces man and everything produces after its own kind. If horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, "Let us." make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in.
0: Creflo Dollar is wrong. Uh, One of the foundational doctrines of the scripture is monotheism. There's only one true God. Every other God is a false God. So if you are a God, little g, God, you are a God, little g, false God. I would recommend repentance immediately. (laughs) There is only one God. But see, again, all these are tied together. And the reason is doctrine is like buttoning your buttons. Doctrine is like buttoning. when When you button your buttons, what happens if you get off on the first button? What happens? Now, for some of you, it may be all over the map. But for, for most people, however you button the first button is going to determine the rest of your buttons. And you, once you say you're a little God, that affects who God is. If you're a little God, then where does that leave God? And that takes us to that God has lost his legal rights. God has no authority anymore on earth. God can do nothing unless we allow him to do something. And this is a, a video clip from Benny Hinn discussing this doctrine that God lost his legal rights with Miles Monroe. Let's watch that clip we get the
1: mind of god about his will we pray it when we pray it we give him legal right to perform it yes let me define prayer for you in this show prayer is man giving god permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs in other words prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference That's incredible, that is incredible. God could do nothing on earth. Nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, He can only do what you permit him to do.
0: God can only do what you or I permit God to do. That's wrong on so many levels. God is still the sovereign God of the universe. Always has been, always will be. And as my friend Justin Peters likes to say, God can do whatever he jolly well wants. And he's not so interested in getting permission from you or from me. But again, one button leads to the other. God lost his legal rights. And then finally, it all culminates with the idea that, that there's healing in the atonement. That because of Christ's suffering on the cross, that every one of us can be healed through his atonement of all our diseases and sickness through the atonement. Now, like a lot of these things, there's, a, there's an ounce of truth there. There is healing in the atonement in the sense that Christ paid the penalty for all of sin. And sickness and death is part of the penalty of sin, of of the fallen world we live in. And so ultimately, yes, there is healing in the atonement, and we will have a glorified body that will never age, never get tired, that will never have disease and sickness, and will never gain unwanted weight. That's the part I'm waiting for. But not in this life. That's going to happen not in this life. But they say, no, if you have enough faith... You'll you'll have perfect health. You'll never get sick. You'll never have disease. And I have a clip for you from the wife of Kenneth Copeland, Gloria Copeland, and she's correcting some of the false ideas that we have as Christians, some of these false traditions that, that God doesn't always want us to be in perfect health, and also the false idea. She says never, ever pray something if it's God's will. Don't do it, and she explains why. Let's watch that clip.
2: God puts sickness on you to teach you something. That's another tradition. You would have to be a real dum dum to learn that way. So we are taught truth. We, we don't uh, learn truth by suffering. Suffering is not God's will for you. Now, if you're not going to pay any attention to the Word of God, you're going to try to live your own, on your own steam and, and not honor Him in your life suffering will be the result. You could take that one psalm right there, and you could do away with the tradition that says, Lord, if it be thy will, heal him. Don't even bother to pray for me if you're going to pray that. If you don't know enough about the Word of God to know it's God's will to heal, you can't pray the prayer of faith, and so you might as well just stay home.
0: It's always God's will to heal. Uh, don't ever ask and pray if it's God's will. In fact, if you're going to pray that, don't even pray for her. In fact, you need to, you need to stay home. Let me go out on a limb and, and just guess that maybe mercy is not her primary spiritual gift. <laughs> what, what does this mean? Well, listen, the, the Bible is clear. Suffering and pain is part of the Christian experience. Paul says the Holy Spirit's leading him right into bonds and tribulations. And when we're in this series, when we're talking about faith in turbulent times, it doesn't mean a faith that takes away. It's a faith that endures and sees you through. That's what we're talking about: trusting God, not trusting yourself or your own mouth or your own confession, it's putting our faith and trust in God even in the hard times. The funny thing about it is, people do get sick and die. Even the televangelists, you know what happens to all of them eventually? They get sick and they die. The Bible says it's appointed to all men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so even the father of the entire word faith movement out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Kenneth Hagan, guess what happened to him about seven years ago? He died. Now, I had one of his followers say, well, James, he died, but he died in perfect health. <laughs> I rest my case. Death is kind of like the opposite of perfect health, kind of, Um let me just say this. These things are not true on so many others. Now, James, are you saying that Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan, you're saying that Joel Osteen, we have a whole profile on Joel Osteen. You've got to read it. You're saying that these people, uh, uh, Gloria Copeland, these people are not Christian. I'm not saying that at all. I don't know. Uh, many of them pro- may, may be. Only God knows who belong to him. And it could be, that many of, could be that all of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That could be. See that's what makes it a danger from within, but it's nevertheless a very real and present danger. And when you're wrong in these areas, we've got to be vigilant, guarding our own hearts and then guarding the flock that God has given us. Two other things that we want to see. Paul ends with the with the uh, advice: How should you watch? If you're going to be a good watchman, how? Verse thirty-one is the answer. He says, "Therefore, be on the alert." In other words, watch. Be a watchman. Be on the alert remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Two things I see in the verse. First of all, if we're going to be good watchmen, it must be continuously. He says, you need to do it like I did, in the morning and the evening, night and day, for three years. That's 365 days times three. That's over 1,000 days in the morning and the evening, continuous. This can't be something that we do just this day or just this week. It's a lifelong commitment that you're going to be guarding yourself and guarding the flock of what, uh, protecting them from spiritual error and uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that those who don't could know the gospel of grace. And the, the final point, not only must it be continuously, it also must be, has to be, compassionately. He said, admonish each one, how? With tears. With tears in his eyes, not as a bash or an attack, but with a broken heart, the Apostle Paul shared the gospel with those he came into contact with. He was that watchman before King Agrippa. He was that watchman at the Areopagus in Athens. He was that watchman chained between the two Roman soldiers. And he continuously, with compassion and tears, loved people and wanted to see them have a relationship with God, have their sins forgiven. And he could say these years later that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. In these turbulent times in which we live, can we have that kind of faith? Can we help people find their safe harbor in these times of turbulence? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for truth. And we want to ask you to help us to know these ancient words that you've given us that we might... Make them part of our hearts, our minds, that everything we do and say and think are uh, guided by your clear word. That we might be able to, first of all, protect our own hearts against error, but that we might also be a good watchman. That we might have compassion for our family members, our friends who have gone down that wrong spiritual path. That we might be able to do one day... Like the Apostle Paul himself who could say, I, I wish that I myself could be accursed if it would mean that my, that my people could be saved. Help us to be that kind of watchman. Help us that we might be innocent of the blood of all men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.